Hello, and welcome to the January podcast of Ordinary Means. I'm your host, Sean Nolan, here with Matt Bowling. Hey, Sean. And our guest today is uh, author and pastor, Jim Belcher. Hey, Jim, thanks for joining us. Hey, it's great to be here, you guys. It's great to have you with us. We just uh, Matt and I just finished reading up your book. I've got a copy here, uh, Deep Church, A Third Way Beyond Emerging and Traditional. Um, a lot in that title. <laughs> and uh, I think the thing that Matt and I have appreciated, we were talking about this, I think, even before we, we got you on the phone, is how much um, this, is, uh, this book has uh, challenged us just to think about uh, what what our churches should involve. So uh, this is this is a, a book that I think is going to be beneficial on a lot of different levels, and uh, we're thankful to have you with us. Yeah, good to be here. Well, um, let's let's start out, uh, Jim. Why don't uh, we get a little bit about you? Tell us where you came from. How did you? Because you came through the emerging movement. You were a uh, would you call yourself a broad evangelical for a while? Um, Give, give us your, yeah. sort of your testimony, how you got to where you are now as a PCA pastor. You, uh, you know, bo- born in Boston, uh, hence the, 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 you know, still being a, a huge Red Sox fan. Um, raised mostly in Rhode Island, about an hour south. Uh, Christian home, uh, conservative Baptist uh, church in, in Barrington, Rhode Island. Um, went off to, uh, had, had, you know, so I talk about that a little bit in the book, and then went off to Gordon College my college years and had a great experience there and that's outside of Boston and then I ended up coming to the west coast really after college to be trained to teach English in China for a year and that's when I got really introduced to kind of west coast evangelicalism and and eventually uh, when I got back from China enrolled at Fuller Seminary um, began work with with Rich Mao who writes the foreword of the book and who's now who's who now is the president I ended up leaving uh, for a little bit and going back to DC to work on a PhD but I Hightailed it back out as soon as my coursework was done to California because I was dating a gal out here who's now my wife and the mother of our four kids, um, and we were in we were in Pasadena and it was during my time in Pasadena where I was writing my dissertation. I was teaching a little bit at Azusa Pacific University out right near Pasadena and and I was on staff at Lake Avenue Congregational Church as one of the young adult pastors. And I was part of, um, kind of in the 90s, we were, we were part of the early Gen X uh, conversation that was going on. And I happened to be there at a time in history where a, a number of, of, at the time we were young, young evangelicals have gone on to become major voices kind of in the emerging slash evangelical world. So Rob Bell was uh, at the church as an intern at the time. Mark Ostriker was on staff. He was the, the junior high and executive pastor there and, and then has gone on to youth specialties. Um, Kara Powell, who's at Fuller Seminary with the Fuller Youth Institute, was on staff at the time. So we're all part of this dialogue. Um, I left uh, Lake Avenue in the late 90s and uh, wanted to church plant. And I, I, I joined up with the, the Presbyterian Church in America, the PCA, uh, for, for a couple of reasons. But probably the most significant was is because I had, I had really been blessed by the, the teaching ministry of Tim Keller, and he was PCA. And so I began to inquire about the PCA and eventually became a church planner and moved an hour south of Pasadena into uh, the Newport Beach, Orange County area. And uh, but I so even though for a number of years I was really involved in the the PCA and getting ordained and building my church, I always kept an eye out for 
what was going on in the kind of the, the Gen X world, which eventually became the emerging church. Um, and it was, it was during um, that time of kind of sorting out, I realized in reading the literature, I thought, gosh, um, I understand what they're saying. I, I kind of have a foot in both worlds because I was, I was in that world for quite a while. And, um, and I borrowed a lot from it, but I'm also now in the, the, the Presbyterian church world. And I, I, that's where the idea for the book came. Um, out of that and, and really hoping that I could speak to both sides because I realized that both sides were talking right past each other with a, with quite a bit of, of anger and vitriol. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that I appreciate about your book. Uh, I was We were talking about this earlier that I, uh, I avoided the emerging church uh, books initially and that, that whole movement when that came out, my church wasn't uh, wasn't dealing with that. My church was actually dealing with some of the Federal Vision things at that time. Um, and one of the things, though, I appreciate about, about your book is that you are, uh, you really do hold that mediating position where you're gentle with both sides. You're looking at the errors of both sides, but you're not looking at them in a, um, uh, in a caustic way. Right. You're, well, some of it comes. Some of, you're right. I mean, some of it comes out of relationships. I mean, when you know these people and you've worked with these people and they're your friends, and and they're also in the kingdom of God with you. Um, you know, I, I mean, I I would want my friends to to deal in this this way with me. Um, and I think a lot of times we don't know the people who are on the other side of arguments, and we think we can write you know kind of caustic lead towards them and not think it's going to hurt feelings or divide the body. And for me. Um, Unity is a really important thing because it was important for Jesus. <laughs> so I, I really take that take that seriously. So um, you know, I, I want to be able to continue. And, and you know, I, I'm a teacher too. I mean, I, I was a professor, and I really feel like you know, people don't learn by getting banged over the head. They they learn by gentle persuasion. They learn by asking questions. They learn by by dialogue. That's how we all learn. Uh, very, very seldom do we learn when somebody attacks us. Um, yeah, we and don't, we, really we don't want... always learn by being ripped apart. There's the, there's those few occasions. Uh, there's a few occasions. David yeah, and Nathan come to we're... mind, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We don't like to get ripped apart and shredded in, in public, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so I thought, hey, if I really felt like these guys and gals that were. Are friends of mine, if I thought they were they were reducing the gospel, uh, for instance, that's a term I use in in, the, in one of my chapters. Or I thought the traditional church that I grew up in, and even the people who are now pushing back really hard against the emerging, if I thought they were doing the same thing, I, hey, I want to point that out. That's what love does. But love does it and speaks truth in love. Uh, so I wanted to speak truth, but I wanted to do it in love because I, I feel like that's what I try and teach my congregation to do with each other. Now, is is the Newport Church plant? Was this the your first plant, or did you do a plant out of Lake Avenue? No, first plant. We yeah, we didn't. Uh, we did not. We, we although we had a church within a church at Lake Avenue, we had a couple hundred people in their twenties in a ministry called Twenty Something. Okay, uh, that was very much like a church plant. This this is uh, this is our first uh, church plant, and it's about nine years now we've been doing it. It's, it's such a that's such a, a leap going from. Um, Evangelicalism into the PCA. Had you had any uh, interaction with? I, well, you said Tim Keller. Was Tim Keller your really your only connection with the PCA? Um, no, I. Well, the one piece of the puzzle that I, I I skipped was that my first semester out in California in seminary was at Westminster 
Theological Seminary in Escondido. Okay. And uh, I did a semester there and then transferred up to Fuller because I, after a semester, I really was being led to go and do more thinking about political philosophy, and Fuller was a better place to prepare me for that. Um, and so I did have friends like Ian Dugid, um, uh, mm-hmm. some of the other professors down there. So I was able to talk to them about the PCA. And we would often have those guys up for retreats, even when I was leading the 20-something. I think five or six years in a row, we had a Westminster Old Testament professor come up of some sort and teach um, our folks who were not used to getting teaching out of the Old Testament. So I had connections that I went to. And I was just so impressed when I first uh, heard about the PCA, just how aggressively they were church planning, how aggressively they were were building... um, the church and and I liked the people I met. And I very soon in the process I started connecting with a lot of the church plants of Tim Keller's church, Redeemer New York, and I was so impressed by the way they were weaving in liturgy and and kind of the ancient church into the into the the, the modern, if you will, or the you know the current church in ways that could be communicated. And um, those guys really became my mentors. Tim from afar. Um, the first few years, um, you know, he, I didn't want to bother him and he was too busy. Um, but the, the kind of the, the, the church planners were really, really helpful. Now, I, what's been fun coming out of this is that through the book and having Tim endorse the book, he and I have become friends now and, uh, are teaming up on a couple things. And that, that's been a great thrill when you get to actually meet and then become friends with a mentor from afar. Yeah, his, uh, if you saw USA Today, or maybe you didn't, but USA Today has Tim Keller above the fold, picture of him. Very wow. interesting. Yeah, you got to go out and pick it up, or look on the website. That's today. Today. Oh Today's wow! USA okay. Today. He's got Tim yeah. Keller on the front page, above the fold. Yeah, <laughs> I mean he's story. you know, yeah, and it's when when I asked him to read the manuscript, and I asked him to to uh, to possibly endorse it. This was before his his first book had even come out. Um, and so I knew he was really well known in, in certain circles, but I didn't expect um, you know his his reputation to grow the way it has worldwide. And, and there's no question, you know, having his blurb on the front of, front of the book has really helped. Certainly. Yeah. We, before we got went on uh, on the air, we were talking about how your book is being used, um, and a number of different ways. Uh, we've we've touched on some of them. I think you're writing more to uh, an evangelical crowd uh, than you are necessarily to uh, to a Reformed crowd. That's not to say there's not a benefit in Reformed folks reading this book. Um, but I know, for example, I don't. I hate to start with one of the critiques of your book, but I think yeah. this was this was helpful. Kevin D. Young's uh, article that right. he wrote online. One of his critiques was that your traditionalism. Or, or your middle ground looks more like a soft traditionalism. Right. Yeah, I, 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 I love those kind of reviews, and, and yeah. I've gotten to gotten to know Kevin through that review, and uh, we email back and forth on things, and, and I appreciate uh, what he does and the, go- the whole Gospel Coalition. Mm-hmm. But I, I just find it really funny. I, you know you've really hit a third way or a middle ground when people on the emerging church say you're on their side, Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 uh, really appreciate how you've you've you know stood in the in the gap for the emerging side against the traditional. And when the traditional guys say wink wink, this is really just a, a nicer, softer, kinder t- traditional church, you know, or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I, I kind of laugh uh, at that, and, and that's fine because that means both sides are, are kind of listening and 
they're learning from it and, and hopefully interacting. I mean, I think we've had tremendous interaction on the blogs by both emerging and traditional people on both on the same blog, dialoguing back and forth. And, and um, that's great. If I can pr- kind of be that, that person in the middle who's pulling the two sides together to learn from each other, that's great. Um, so, so I don't, I don't, I don't mind that. Um, you know, Alan Hirsch writes on the, uh, in the, as a, an endorsement inside that this is a great apologetic for the emerging church. So, um, that's great. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's such an interesting, um, a pull. Now, when I read the, after reading, uh, the book and Kevin's article, I tend to agree, agree with you. I think that there is a, um, I don't think it's so much that you're a soft traditionalist as as it is that you're not writing to the reformed, um, and right. so you're presenting yep. you're presenting tr- traditionalism um, in a in a package that is more uh, enticing to the emerging. Is that would that be a fair way to put it? Yeah. Yes and no. I mean, I, I certainly am trying to persuade my emerging brothers and sisters to a, this third way. But at the same time, um, I don't consider the third way traditionalism. So let me let me push back a little bit and clarify. Yeah. yeah um, and it's diff- and it's difficult because tradition is a word that I use in the book, and I, but I always use it with a big T. Uh, and what I'm calling people to is the big T tradition. And the tradition, when I say a third way between emerging and traditional, uh, traditional in that sense is small t tradition. Um, and it, and it really is, it really comes from, you know, those, those traditional churches really are churches that find their, their lineage goes back to, uh, the time of the Reformation, but not the magisterial Reformation of the Lutherans and the Calvinists. Um, it, they really were the, the no creed but Christ, and they're really, in some ways, the traditionalism that I'm talking about are, are really the descendants of the Anabaptist movement that reacted very, very heavily and harshly against the Reform movement, and vice versa, obviously, and, and they both were doing stuff. Um, um, and so those are the people who, who, when I talk about traditional, and so these, these would tend to be, um, you know, broadly evangelical, Baptist, independent, low church, free church, or different terms that are being used. Uh, and what happens with someone like Kevin DeYoung is, um, because, because tradition is important for reform people, he often got confused in thinking, um, that, that he was part of that traditional wing. And, and some of that confusion is my fault, too, because I quoted him and used him as a traditional person, um, when really Kevin is, is probably closer to the great tradition um, that I'm talking about. So what happens is the Reformed people think when I'm critiquing the traditional side, they think I'm critiquing them, but I'm really not. Does that make sense? Yeah, actually, that, that's actually I don't very, confuse, very helpful. Confuse, confuse your listeners too much. So, um, I mean, mean, I think I say this... Uh, a couple times because um, what I what I what I often say is that the new the new emerging church or the emerging church, if it's not careful and if they're not rooted to the great tradition, in fifty years they will be the traditional church. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, they they will be exactly because the traditional church at the time of the Reformation when they reacted against the Luthers and Calvins of the day, believe it or not, I mean when they say no creed or Christ and they don't want history. Uh, they want to start anew. There, there's lots of similarities between them and what's going on in some emerging circles, and and they would they would become the same thing over time once it gets kind of um, where there's no rootedness in the 2,000 year history of the New Covenant Church. That's exactly right. 
That's yeah. exactly right. So all that you're seeing in most traditional churches is um, what got stuck from 200 years ago. They thought it was new, contemporary, cutting edge. It wasn't, it wasn't the same thing as the great tradition. They were no creed but Christ churches, and it just got stuck. They got stuck in it and became traditionalism. But it's not a life-breathing, giving, new tradition that's um, constantly reforming because it's connected back to the great tradition. So when you talk about big T tradition, you're talking about historic Christian faith. When you talk about small T tradition, you're talking about contemporary traditions that have, as you put it, have stuck. So, sort of the, the mega church, the church growth, um, the uh, Plymouth Brethren lines, uh, things of that nature. Yeah, you know, it, anything that, I mean, but, but even churches that are, that are, that look, uh, very traditional with their hymns can fit in this mold as well. You know, the hymns and the, and the, and the structure of the church can fit in, uh, to that, to that mold as well, because they're, they don't, because they're not tied in, they're really, in some ways, stuck. I mean, they'll, they'll, so they'll come and they say, look, the only thing we need is the Bible. And of course, we all say that. I mean, the Bible is the final authority. There's no question about that. But what, excuse me, what they're going to say is we just need the Bible and that's it. Um, but, but really what they're doing is they're saying they're, they're interpreting the Bible through their own cultural lens. Now that may be the most current cultural lens, but it also, it also could be a lens that, that is 200 years old and has never changed and they don't want it to change. Um, because believe it or not, the great tradition doesn't keep, get us stuck in stuff. It actually, it, it actually becomes the rudder for helping us navigate the perilous waters that we're in. But so it helps us to, to interpret and understand our scriptures anew in the, in the day and age that we're in. But at the same time, it gives us that rudder to make sure that we don't go off course. We always are looking back to what the 2000 year history of the church has been telling us. Um, and uh, so that, that's what I'm trying to get across. It's, it's a fairly nuanced position, but, but then again, these, 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 these dialogues are. Yeah, but that's that's that is I think very helpful in terms of understanding uh it, that that connection. So it's a uh it, the the Calvinistic reformed heritage is this great is certainly part of this great tradition because the great tradition goes back as far as the um the fathers and the apostles. Correct. Um right. and then taking what it sounds like, you know, Calvin's always reforming position now and bringing right. that forward in time to where we are right now. Um, I'm, I am just hugely struck with the fact that uh, what is now, you know, what was the church growth movement 10, 20 years ago is traditional now. Right. Um, people yeah, can't right. imagine doing it a different way. In fact, there are uh, singing hymns again, like you've mentioned uh Revi uh, revisiting liturgy is um, there are groups that are doing that as a reaction against what they call the traditional church, which is really the the chorus singing churches. That's right. Yeah, no, that, that's that's the irony is that it doesn't take long for something to become the tradition. And again, there's great similarities between the kind of the contemporary megachurch, their ecclesiology. Uh, their view of history uh, that that you can find in churches that are two, three, four, five hundred years old, uh, because these are the these are the independent, the free church, the churches that really rejected 
the Magisterial Reformation. I mean, look, the thing that Calvin wanted to make very clear when he was trying to reform the Church, and Luther as well, is that they were going back to the Church Fathers and saying that everything that's in the Church Fathers is in what we're trying to reclaim, where the Church has gone wrong. They weren't saying, we're starting all over again, we're looking at Scripture on our own and just discarding the past. They were building on the past. They were relying on the past. Then there was a whole movement of churches that are now the modern-day evangelical church, trace their lineage back to, who are saying, no, we're rejecting everything. The problem with the Reformation is you didn't, there wasn't enough discontinuity. We're rejecting all that. We're starting with just the Bible, and we're going to apply this, you know, into our context. And that's really what oftentimes is the Achilles heel of the the, uh, of my evangelical brothers and sisters is is they think that they can do that without the wisdom of the Holy Spirit and the history of the Holy Spirit over the last two hundred or two thousand years mm. or longer if if you if you count the the the, the Jewish you know um, our our Israel yeah. fathers yeah. and stuff so so that's what that's what I'm trying to get across so you, what you see is really the same Achilles heel that's in the mega church uh, oftentimes in the emerging churches. Uh, it's the same Achilles heel that has been part of these independent free churches for for the past 500 years. And that's why I say, you know what, you may not like the the traditional small T church, the 1950 style stand-up, sit-down kind of church that seems ossified and dead. You may not like that. But in 50 years, because you have the same Achilles heel, I'm trying to warn you guys, you're going to be, you, you most likely are going to be in the same place. Mm. Yeah, it's it's um, interesting, Jim. You say that because I live. I live. I don't know if you know this, but I live in Seattle now. And um, Mars Hill, that. West Seattle, occupies the building that my congregation originally built. Mm. Long story behind that. It's actually the building. If you read the history of Mars Hill, it is the building where Mark Driscoll wanted to plant a church in the mid nineties. Didn't work okay. out then, but later he he was able to come back, and now it's one of his sites. So they are oh. a good neighbor, uh, and. And uh, Driscoll's an acquaintance through Dr. Jones, through Dr. Peter Jones. Okay, right. Uh, right. So I've spent some time with him and in his thought world, and I rub shoulders with his people up here. And one of the things that I've grown concerned about is exactly on the line of what you just said: is if you've placed yourself, and I'm not saying Mark, I have not talked to Mark about this, so I don't know if this is where he is. But a concern I would have from the outside looking in is if you've placed yourself in the um, 2009 indie rock scene in Seattle and said, we're going to capture this cultural moment. Either you're going to watch those 25 to 35-year-olds or 18 to 35-year-olds, you're, you're going to stick with that and grow old with them, or you're going to change and, and they're really going to be peeved at you. Because right, right. everyone lo- everyone loves the music that they listen to in high school and college. Right. That's we all get stuck there, you know, unless we purposefully expand. So you do right. if you pick a cultural moment, um, you're always going to run into that. It just becomes the new tradition, and it'll be interesting right. to see. I plan to be in Seattle for a long time, but it'll be interesting to see how they handle that and how they lead their congregations because it can just be what happens when indie rocks out and something else is in because it'll That's happen. Right. <laughs> That's right. There's no doubt about That's it. That's right. It'll happen. So what do you do? You know, in the way we, you know, what I say this in the book and the chapter on worship, but uh, you know, there's there's really three things in our arsenal when we when we look at trying to be biblically uh, um, faithful to our worship. Um, you, the, the the three things that we need is obviously we want to see what the scripture says about worship, um, but the second thing is we we want to be able to. 
contextualize or meet our culture. We, we, I mean, we we want to be able to sing and and have music that's accessible to someone who's out there. So, right. what our culture is. So we're not gonna we're not gonna use if we're in Orange County, we're not gonna use mu- the music of Africa or Latin America necessarily. On it, you know, to to reach our our folks. So that's important. And everybody, I think, recognizes that on some level. But the thing that the other third piece that I bring in that I think is so important is to be rooted in the great tradition because we need the wisdom of the great tradition so that our our the, that our understanding of the scriptures and worship doesn't start becoming exactly like the culture over time without us knowing. It's kind of the frog in the kettle, the proverbial frog. And the tradition keeps pulling us back. It becomes the rudder so that we don't um, contextualize to the point of syncretism or just blending right in. It helps us balance. So at Redeemer, what we're always asking is, okay, how are we connecting with the culture in the sense that it's accessible, it's a public worship service, if someone walks in off the street, are they going to at least recognize the instrumentation, for instance? But at the same time, we always want to keep asking, you know, are we countercultural enough? Are we prophetic enough? Are we doing this in a way that's going to actually transform people? And those are the conversations, uh, along with being uh, biblically faithful, that we keep asking ourselves. Because if not, after a while, churches tend to, they think they start out biblical, they're trying to reach the culture, and the next thing you know, they've completely mirrored the culture. And, and people are like, well, what happened over these 20 years? Um, and and that's, the, that's a danger in the emerging church, and it's a danger in the traditional church, because both sides throw out the great tradition that becomes a, uh, almost a plumb line for us, if that makes sense. Well, yeah, it, it does. Can you, I have a couple questions related to that that, that come to my mind. Sure. Let me, let me ask the, the, the contra- controversial one here first. Um, as I'm listening to you, as I'm thinking about this, as I'm thinking about this idea of, always reforming as it applies to our worship. And, and I think maybe a setup to this question, um, it, it would be good to tell our listeners by, by innovative worship, you're, you're talking about uh, different instrumentations, but you're singing hymns. You're singing some of the great standards of the Christian faith. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we, we've made a decision when we were trying to, to balance the, the, the faithfulness of the scriptures, the great tradition, you know, so what has molded Christians for 2,000 years, and then also what we think can connect with the, the population that we're called to reach. That we've made a decision that by and large, 7 out of 10 or 8 out of 10 songs that we're going to use are either um, ancient hymns, uh, so we'll sing stuff from 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th century, uh, uh-huh. The great hymnody, the great hymnody that comes out of the, the you know the, the the 15th and 16th, 17th, 18th century, uh, as well as newer hymns. Uh, there's some new, great, wonderful new hymns that are being written, um, and and the reason we do it is because we we're really after you know theological depth, biblical faithfulness, and stuff that can really mold, shape, and disciple the believers that are in worship. Um, but at the same time, we use instrumentation, we use arrangements. Uh, that we really think will speak to the language of the people that are in our neighborhood. Um, and so a lot of times we're singing songs and people don't even realize they're hymns because of the arrangements or the instru- instrumentation. Um, you know, some of them they recognize because they're the, they're the tunes that are, have become famous in the last 500 years. Um, but we also we also do what would you know people would think would be a little more chorus driven stuff, as long as it has depth and it has uh, theological integrity as well. 
but again, that's what helps us balance those three, the, the scriptures, the great tradition, and our contemporary, the culture that we swim in. You know, as that relates to what Matt was talking about in terms of how does, you know, Driscoll's got an indie rock church, how how is that going to change over time? So here's here's the question that is floating around in my mind right now. How much does a church need to be like Madonna? You know, Madonna's famous for reinventing herself with each progressive generation. How how much do you think a church needs to do that? And is there a is there a sense in which that's what it means to be always reforming? Um, yeah, I mean, I think you know that term always reforming, reforming is an interesting term. Exactly what what does that mean? And different people take it differently. But yeah, I mean, I think I think churches need to make a, a, an attempt. Um, to speak a language in a public worship service where a person off the street can come in and understand what's going, or at least it's accessible. They can listen. Um, they're not going to understand everything. Uh, it, you know, there's going to be language that they're going to have to learn and vocabulary they're going to have to learn. But my goodness, that happened when I first started taking my wife to a baseball game. There was all kinds of, you know, nobody asked the angels out here to, um, to communicate the game in a way that my wife would understand. Uh, no, I had to sit and explain all the rules, all the vocabulary, all the in language, all that. Once she got it, she's in. She got it. But she didn't come and she wasn't offended by the Anaheim Angels and, and the announcers and, and whatnot with all this inside language they were using. They didn't try and not use it. It's part of how you appreciate the game. That's a great but I don't want to say that we're, yeah. we're, you know, uh, I'm not saying we, we would ever want to do that, but we, we, we want to be like the friend, like I was to my wife, to say, let me tell you what this word is, and let me tell you what's going on here. And, um, you know, we want to be not necessarily seeker-friendly, but guest-friendly, so that we can help people along li- little bits during the service. So we'll say, hey, at this point we're going to do this, and let me tell you what this means, and this is on what page, because we use a kind of a bulletin booklet kind of thing, and we help people along. So when they get into it, they understand, wow, there's incredible depth. I mean, so my wife now would say, wow, there's a lot of thinking behind baseball. I thought it was just you stand up there and hit the ball. Um, and now she realizes, wow, there's a, this is an intelligent game, and it takes thinking, and it's fun, and it's exciting. Um, but there's a whole culture to baseball um, that you, when you get into, you really begin to appreciate and love. Uh, and it's the same thing with with God's people uh, as well. So we don't want to do that, but but there is a sense too that we want to do our best to find ways uh, to to connect with that person off the street. And I think one of the best ways to doing that is not only our modern, you know, the language we use, so it's not archaic, but but also the um, you know even the instrumentation is it is an easier way to do that because they're going to recognize certain instruments that fit the music of the day. Now, this is interesting about Mark's church. I've only been to Dris- Mark Driscoll and Mars Hill once, uh, and, and so I got the experience, kind of the indie rock. And one of the things that I noticed is, you know, the indie rock was phenomenal, uh, and the, they were tremendous musicians. But as I looked around and looked at the multi-thousands that were there, nobody was singing any of the indie rock. Um, but when they, at the end of the sermon, they started singing uh, Be Thou My Vision, the church went crazy. And the two or 3,000 people just started belting it out. I don't know, make, decide for yourself. Was it that the indie rock wasn't singable, they didn't know the song? wasn't accessible, or all of a sudden they got to something they could actually sing uh, and maybe knew it because it was part of the great, the great tradition, if you will, The people just went crazy with it. And I was like, whoa, I turned around and people were belting these songs out. And they did, I think they did a couple hymns 
were people really sang loudly. And so that tells me something. I think people want to sing. We've got to provide songs that, are, that they can sing yeah. uh, that aren't so fast or so loud that you just end up nodding your head or tapping your foot or humming along. Yeah, we, we uh, tend to forget singability as one of the, one yeah, of the issues. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I mean, I think God's people, uh, singing really is just group prayer. I mean, we, we're praying as we sing all together. Um, and if we, and if not, then we're right back to just the pastor and the people up front doing the performing, the praying, the singing, that sort of thing. We want to get songs where everybody can sing, and hymns tend to be written in a way uh, that are that are congregational friendly and singable. And so we're, you know, if we find modern hymns that are like that, great theology tied into the tradition and and singable. <laughs> great music, great tune. Oh man, we we love those, and we need more people writing stuff like that that has depth, that connects with the culture, and that is singable uh, for people. Because I believe I believe the singing is part of what the worship that changes us. I think it's part of how God molds us. Um, one of my um, favorite emerging guys, Mike Frost from Australia, says these are dangerous songs. Well, if they're dangerous songs, we all need to be singing them, not just listening to them <laughs> and memorizing yeah, yeah. them. We have a hymn, we have a hymn of the month every month at Redeemer. It's put in a in an instrumentation where our, our kids as well as our adults will get you know be able to be accessible to, and that becomes what we teach our kids in a Sunday school at home. We really believe they're learning dangerous songs. I mean, these are songs that are culturally transforming in that that if they're sung like the black slaves sung their songs out in the plantation on the cotton fields, they're, they're dangerous. They're revolutionary. They, they breed, you know, freedom into our hearts and, and transformation into our hearts and our minds and they, and kingdom values and they get us excited. I, I want everybody singing those. Certainly. Certainly. The, um, let, let's take a step back for just a second. We've been talking about, um, worship and particularly what I guess you would call this deep worship, um, as related to the book's title, Deep Church, uh, let's let's take just a step back. We, we've talked a good bit about traditionalism. We've talked about this great tradition. We've distinguished uh, between the two. If you had to um, define the emerging church, <laughs> that may that may be a task right there. If you if you needed to define the emerging church in a, you know in a paragraph, what would that uh, how would you do that? Just for our listeners who may be listening to this going, okay, I'm following you in terms of worship needs to be biblical. I'm following you in terms of the great tradition, but I don't get what this emerging thing is and what these guys are talking about. Yeah, I might need a little more than a paragraph, but let okay. me try. I mean, the, the, we'll the give emerging, you two. <laughs> yeah, the, the emerging movement is really, they are, they are the heirs to kind of the, the free independent churches of the last 500 years in the Protestant Reformation. Um, they used to be called young evangelicals. Uh, I, it, we've, most of them have grown up, um, but they, they at the beginning when they first started writing, they were more of, of, of a pro- protest or reaction against the other parts of the emerging church, the, the, the traditional church, and even the mega church. And in the book, I I define emerging with three terms, and I take these from from missiologist Ed Stetzer. Um, there's the relevance who have the most in common with the traditional side but are trying to contextualize in a way to reach their culture. I think I would put uh, Mark Driscoll in there, uh, um, Dan Kimball, uh, the Rock Harbor Church out here in, in Costa Mesa, California. Um, then the second group are the Reconstructionists, and these are the guys that, that are, were early on really concerned with ecclesiology, 
uh, tended to be out of the Mennonite Anabaptist traditions. Uh, Alan Hirsch, uh, Mike Frost, guys, um, uh, the organic church movement, home churches, small kind of a thing. And there's a third group called the Revisionists, and this is the group um, that, that comprises a lot of the people in the emergent side of this movement, the emergent village. And they were much more in the early days talking about philosophy and theology and really wanting to rethink uh, what the evangelical church was committed to and the traditional church was committed to in regards to theology. And they were the ones, according to Stetzer, and I would agree, who got most of the pushback, continue to get most of the pushback, and the ones that create the most heat, uh, because they're the ones that are most willing to kind of uh, shift and change and revision uh, some of the, the evangelical standard doctrines, or at least they're willing to put them on the table, where a lot of us are saying those can't be put on the table, because that's the foundation of who we are. That's the floor in which we dance on. You take that away, and, and there's, no, there's really no conversation. So it's those, those three groups kind of pr- provide the emerging church, um, but within that, again, the guys like the McLaren, Brian McLaren and Tony Jones, Doug Paget are part of the emergent or the revisionist side of that, and they are the ones that create have created most of the heat uh, around the conversation. Now, what are the um, what are the pros and cons? Would you say of the emerging church? What do they offer to the broad evangelical wor- world and even to the reformed world? Um, and what do they? What is it we need to be wary of? Yeah, that's great. I mean, in the early days, I think they they were uh, in some ways much more in the deconstruction, the protesting phase, and so they were. There was what I do in the book is I look at seven different ways that they were protesting or pushing back. And one of the things that, and, and I think they're right on most of these. Uh, one of the things was uh, that they felt like the, the traditional church had become captive to the Enlightenment or modernism in its rationality. Another thing is a, a narrow view of salvation, that salvation had been narrowed simply to almost fire insurance, you get saved, and that, that's it. Um, the, the third one, so a, a too narrow view. Um, another one is they felt like they had the traditional church sets up too many boundaries to keep people out. Um, fourth one was that the worship had become completely uncontextualized. Now here they're not talking about the megachurch. Uh, because they're very contextualized. They're talking, you know, think 1950s traditional church. Yeah. Fifth one is that their preaching has become ineffective because it's not speaking the language or connecting with the, the culture. Uh, six, we, six one is weak ecclesiology, that they've lost any sense of what the church is about as God's people uh, moving through history together. And then seventh, tribalism, that a lot in the traditional church have become, a lot of people have become very tribal and, and distant, distance from the culture. Um, you know, and here they're really reacting probably against some of the guys who have grown up in, in gals in, in more fundamentalism, um, you know, whether it's uh, Baptist circles in the South where, where there was a lot of tribalism uh, going on. So those were the seven protests. And what I did in the book is I take each of those, after explaining them, and look at each of them in seven different chapters, allowing the emerging church to kind of lay out their case, and then the traditional church to push back and then I move beyond both, appreciating both sides, but move on to a third way. Okay, that's, yeah, that's helpful because that's, so that's the critiques that the emerging brings to the traditional and, and I think in some respects to the, refor- uh, to the reformed camp. Um, and particularly in that last one, 
the tribalism, would you count in that tribalism some of these um, uh, compound movements, uh, meaning where, where they want you know they want to get all these big families to move away from the culture into uh you know onto some land somewhere and have a you know have a have sort of a a church that's based around these families we do you think that would fall into right. that last category oh yeah yeah anytime you want to circle the wagons because the culture is all bad and and the material is bad it's almost a, a gnostic retreat from the world Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we don't we don't want to be contaminated. I mean, this goes all the way back to, you know, when the Babylonian uh, captivity took place and the Jews were were all sitting outside of Babylon. They were all camped outside of Babylon and the false prophet. Right. So we see this in Jeremiah and says, don't go into the, the evil city. Stay outside. And Jeremiah says, no, I want you to go in. Ignore that prophet, false prophet. I want you to go into the city and seek the peace, the shalom of the city, and give your daughters in marriage and build houses and plant, you know, uh, gardens. And, and I really want you to be involved. You know, and then we pick it all the way up in the New Testament where Jesus is saying, I want you to be both salt and light. Um, there's always a tendency to make two mistakes in the Christian life. One of them is to be tribalistic and pull ourselves back so we're not contaminated from the bad, big bad world out there. Um, and 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 we then what happens is we see not only the bad stuff in the world, but then that that really anything good gets painted with that brush. And the other extreme is is to to become just like the world. In our attempt to reach the world, we become chameleons and we start looking like the world. Um, and you see that even in in kind of the the liberal theology, the 20s, 30s, and 40s and 50s, where they would say the the agenda gets set by the world and the church is there to help. Um, and then after 20 years, 30 years of that, the church looks exactly like the rest, you know, the, the, the rest of the world. And in that sense, I'm using world as the kind of the, 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 um, the thought and patterns of the, of the, the, the non-Christian, uh, not the non-Christian, but the thought patterns of, of the kingdom that does not, uh, represent God's kingdom. Um, you gotta be careful. I mean, world, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But at the same time, we're not supposed to be squeezed into the mold of the world. So the Bible uses them in two different ways. And oftentimes the tribalists said, well, we're against the world. We're not supposed to be pushed into the mold of the world. So anything that's out there, we need to stay away from. Stay in our holy huddle, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but, you know, that's pretty fascinating because sometimes they go back and forth. Sometimes those who are more trying to reach the culture, like the seeker movement, also can become tribalistic. I, I read an interview of a, of a megachurch where the guy was trying to build a huge campus where everything was on the campus that you would ever need in your, for your Christian life. And you, you, you can almost live your entire life except for where you sleep and where you might even your job is maybe on this campus. And this is what his response is. Why are you doing this? Why not spread this money out into the community? And this is what the pastor said. He said, uh, because we want our people to come here so that they're not contaminated by the world. Hmm. Hmm. Um, You know, and that's a tribalistic view. Um, Instead of saying, you know what, let's equip and train our people in such a way that when we send them out in the world during the week, they go out in assault and light, and they go out to transform and to make a difference in the world. You know, one of the things so, that Matt and I have always pressed is this idea of people over programs, that we we don't want to give people in the church so many programs that they don't have any time to develop relationships with non-believers. 
Uh, there's got that, no, to that, be. That, yeah, yeah, you're exactly right. We, we've said the same thing. We've tried to limit uh, people's involvement to a couple time slots, a community group during the week, primarily Sunday mornings, you know, occasionally a leadership meeting here and there. Why? Why do we do that? Because we don't want them in a holy huddle every night at the church. We want them out into their neighborhoods, in their communities, teaching Little League, uh, you know, coaching Little League, being involved with their neighbors in Mercy Ministries, <clears throat> you know, these sorts of things. So, yeah, you're exactly right. Um, but but it is, it's the goal of the church to equip so that when they go out there, they can actually do that and, and make a difference. What you say, Jim, I was reading a little bit on Dan Kimball before we got on the phone, because you're a Maybe a tiny bit more positive on Dan than I would have been, but I, you know, I think you're you're nuanced, which is which is helpful. He's grabbed a few spiritual practices that are a little tough to, for me to swallow, at least. But um, yeah, it, it, I think that one of the things in an early article that he wrote, you know, early, you know, about the emerging movement, somebody asking him, you know, what is all this? Is he said basically this is a group of people who wanted to be um, missional, which of course is a wax nose word, you know, it depends how you use it, and then. Yeah. Um, and uh, concerned about the kingdom. And in the sense of how if missional is defined as we're a missionary people, we're a missionary congregation, this is uh, missionary worship, then in that sense, that's uh, a good corrective um, to the traditional church that's wanted to just sort of circle the wagons and forget that uh, the reason that's today exactly don't. Right. The reason that's today right. don't is so, because people need to know Jesus, you know? Yeah. Yeah, Dan. Dan is a friend. Dan is, is someone I, I I I like and admire. And, you know, Dan's an evangelist. Dan Kimball is he's got a heart of an evangelist. Um, and and so a, a lot of the the way he thinks and, and they they even structure their churches that way. So, you know, he he got into this conversation because he really felt like the traditional church had stopped evangelizing, had stopped moving out missionally into the culture. Um, and what I love about Dan is that he is he is very very teachable. Uh, and always learning, and he doesn't get stuck. And so, you know, he just came out with something on, uh, out of her blog for Leadership Journal where, you know, he's changed his mind on buildings. You know, so early on there was a reaction against the megachurch buildings, and we, we don't need these, and we need to be, you know, we, we, we need to be in homes or, or, or wherever. And then they had an opportunity to purchase, uh, uh, you know, kind of a defunct church, and he talks about how the, the, they turn the fellowship hall into a coffee house that now has become a, a very amazing point of missional outreach. That's uh, cool. Where students from the local universities come and hang out and they build relationships and they talk with them. And it really was a place to meet, to bring, you know, where the world is right there. Um, and he's changed his mind. And, and, and I love that. I, I like that about Dan is that he is always learning and growing. And so when I approach him, even with differences, I want to do it in the spirit of, Hey, we're, we're learning together. I've learned things from him. He's continuing to, to learn. Um, he does not like my emphasis on the great tradition. Uh, that's fine. I'll keep working on him. <laughs> I'll, keep, I'll keep trying to persuade him. Maybe in 10 years he'll say, I changed my mind. I, I don't know. Or, or yeah. who knows? And I have to be open. I have to be open to, to me to be wrong as well. So, um, I, so yeah, I mean, one, one of the things that I think one of the best things on the emerging movement is they have really beat the drum that the church is not just for itself, but is a, is a sent church or a sent people mm -hmm. that we, mm -hmm. we were, we, from the very time of Abraham, God brings his people in to send them back out, um, not just to stay in and hide from the world that we are to go back out into the world and be, and be salt and light. And that's one of the best things that the, the emerging church has brought 
uh, to our attention. I agree. Yeah, one of the points you make in your book that uh, I, I just keep going back to, I talked to you a little bit about it in the um, in the email. In fact, I think even last month's podcast, we mentioned uh, this idea a little bit as we were introducing folks to your book and letting them know that this uh, interview was coming up, is th- this idea of the relationship between belief and belonging. Um, yeah. One one of the ways one of the ways you talk about it in the book is the um, are we as a church inviting to the well or building fences? And it's it's this idea of I, I think of Jesus. I immediately think of Jesus when he came into the world. Was he uh, setting up all of these boundaries for people like the Pharisees did, who said you know the Pharisees said you have to obey all of these different traditions, small t. Um, Jesus right. rather was going where the people were and saying, you know, just come to me, come talk to me. Uh, let's have, let's have some relationship. Um, and so he had, he had prostitutes and tax collectors and, you know, the, the, the filth of society and, and the leaders of society, the religious leaders were coming to him too. Right. Um, That's right. Yeah. But he seems to put, and this is, this is where I think you, your book makes a good critique of both small t traditionalism, well, of small t traditionalism, both in the evangelical world and in the reformed world, is mm-hmm. that we want to not put so many barriers up first before people have an opportunity to meet this Jesus. That's exactly right. Yeah, you know, I tell the story in the book about a friend of mine who's who's in a a, a, a traditional. Uh, in some uh, reformed church where they put so many barriers up that, that guests just stop, stop coming uh, because the people are, they're, they're oftentimes unnecessary barriers for a first time guest that don't need to be there. Um, but let me, let me tell you something really fascinating. I, I just got an email or Facebook message yesterday, a direct message from an emerging church in LA uh, who has been very much on the side. We want people to belong before they believe and so they have not set up any membership covenant. They don't have really any boundary, uh, any boundaries that would even be around the leadership team or when you come further closer to the well. They've had none of that. And now after 10 years, they're beginning, they're beginning to say, wait a sec, they've read my book and they're saying, wow, we've kind of made the opposite mistake of the, the bounded set churches. We've had no boundaries because we were reacting against that, but we're not finding that healthy in, in how we mature believers and how we develop leaders, uh, and how we grow the future of this church beyond just a group that kind of hangs out. And so they want to begin a dialogue with me to say, okay, you know, how do we how do we find this balance that you're talking about in the book? Well, there you go. I mean, that, to me, uh, you know, anybody who writes a book and hears that, uh, that's incredibly encouraging news um, that they're that they're finding it in just in their own experience that it's not working. Uh, so, you know, they want to sit down and say, you know, what, so what's your membership covenant look like? What does it mean for your leaders? What do you, as you get the people closer to the well, which is Jesus, how do you call them to greater commitment, that sort of thing? And that's what you're talking about. So, find, yeah, finding that balance. You talk in the book, um, your chapter on ecclesiology, uh, you talk about the fact that you started uh, the church in in Newport, trying to be very fluid, very flexible, you didn't micromanage, but then you realized that that lack of organization made it difficult for newcomers to get involved. Is in fact, I think that's your sentence. Uh, yep. Yeah, lack of organization yeah. made it difficult for newcomers to know how to get involved. So there is, 
there's a fine line there. Maybe maybe you could expand a little bit on what this looks like practically. That fine line between having having organization, having some programs in place, but at the same time being um, being welcoming. I know one of the things I love about the PCA is you don't have to be Presbyterian or even Reformed to be a member of a PCA church. You just have to be a believer in Jesus Christ. But how do you right, how right. do you what does that look like right. to be to have that welcoming attitude on a very practical level? What does that look like to have that welcoming attitude, um, but at the same time having the programs available? Well, you, you know, you just mentioned one way one way that we do that uh, in in the PCA, and, and thank goodness for that out here because there are so few people out on the West Coast who come from a, the background of the Presbyterian Church in America, um, and so many of them are out of free churches, independent churches. Um, and and uh, it would be very difficult if we had a high bar of membership. So our bar of membership really is basically this. I mean, are, do, you, do you claim the name of Christ? You know, are you relying on him for your salvation, forgiveness of sins, and eternal life right now? You know, and do you have an experience with Jesus um, in the present? Are you, uh, and then are you willing to live in a way that, 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 that honors him? Third, are you willing to support the church? And fourth and fifth is, you know, basically, will you will you submit to your leaders who are there to watch over your souls. And if people say yes to that, they're in, they're members. Um, and we've, that's one step to pull them closer. Um, but, but so what, what, what we try and do is have a worship service that's accessible, that's open, that's guest-friendly. We talk to our guests. We welcome our guests. We tell them where to go for further questions. Um, we do sermons they're accessible to a non-believer walking in, you know, just coming in off the street, so to speak, uh, but at the same time will grow believers. So we're constantly mindful of ways that we want to, we want to open the, the boundary markers to let them come in, uh, let them come into uh, events that we have, Mercy Ministry, come work alongside of us, on missions trips, these, these sorts of things. Those are the opens. Come be with us. Come hang out with us. We want to hang out with you. But as they come in, um, they're, they're, we, the goal is to draw them to the well, which is Christ. Bring them into the center. And as they come in, there's different levels. There's commitment that happens along the way. I mean, one of the first things is, you know, we, we, we don't have an open communion table. So, you know, this is going to be uh, shocking for some listeners maybe. Um, but uh, some traditions are, you know, wherever you are in your spiritual journey, come. Uh, for us, we, wanna, we, want, we, we say it in the bulletin and we say it up front that we, this is for believers. This is a, this is a renewal, a covenant renewal ceremony. Um, you know, and, but we do that in a way that I think is guest friendly. And then as they do that, we're bringing them towards membership. We're bringing them towards, if that, you know, if they need to be baptized prior to that. I mean, there's ways that we're constantly calling them the way Jesus did towards a deeper commitment um, into the fellowship. Um, but some people hang out on the fringes getting to know the church for months before that happens, and, and they're okay with that. Um, but at some point we want to say, hey, we want you to come deeper because there's more in this that will that you'll be able to taste more of this great living water. Yeah, and I think I think Jim, this is re- this really touches on where your book has value well beyond uh, just critiquing uh, errors of the movements that are out there. But I think your your book does present uh, the challenge of um, of really finding what what a gospel centered church needs to look like. And, yeah, and that's, yeah, so, that's exactly right. Yeah. So I'm I'm excited. Yeah. I'm excited how uh, how your book's going to be used. 
Um, I'm, you know, I'm excited. We mentioned uh, last month we had mentioned what you had told me about uh, uh, your book being used at Covenant Seminary. You, um, you, you just said earlier there's a there's a church that's sort of using your book as a manual for church planting. Yeah, I mean, I did not, I didn't write this as a manual for church planting. But what I'm finding is that pastors who young guys who want to plant churches are taking this and using it for their core groups and their launch teams and they're reading it together. Um, I, you know, we just gave 40 copies to Ed Stetzer as he met with 40 organizations that church plant. These were the 40 heads of these organizations and they wanted copies because it's being used on that level. Uh, and I think that's a great way to it's being used. It's also being used for young seminarians who are working out what they believe about the church, and um, but I'm also finding pastors in their 40s and 50s and 60s who are reading it, and it's just encouraging them. I mean, they may have hit some, uh, you know, some discouraging places in the road, and, and this is kind of re-inspiring them about the church. But to be honest, we're, I'm also finding just really energetic lay people who love the church who are reading this and just getting inspired about being the deep church. Um, and, the, you know, I, so I'm hearing it across the board and almost broader than I thought um, that, that this book is encouraging people. And, you know, I love the church. I want it to be unified. I want it to be strong so that we're moving out into mission together. And, and I want it to be all that God wants it to be. I mean, I think God has a high view of his church. And I'm just excited that in a small way, the deep church is helping that. And, and, and it's helping the bride of Christ be as beautiful as it can be. Hmm. Jim, uh, folks may want to get to know uh, you a little bit better. Do you do you have a blog? Do you have um, uh, maybe a church website or something that people can be uh, following some yeah, of the, the thinking the ba- on? Yeah, I, I don't blog as of yet. It's just a time issue with, with four kids and, and, and pastoring a church and then all the stuff that's come with the book. But uh, I, I'm not against it. I just haven't gotten to that point. But they can go to thedeepchurch.com. Um, and they can follow uh, weekly sermons. There's information on the book. There's links to where to buy it. Uh, there's all the interviews, uh, most of the interviews I've done, um, both in print and audio, uh, as well as the 10 or 15 reviews of Deep Church that are there as well. So I would say that that's the best place to go. And it, it's also linked to my, my church, the church's website as well. That's great. Well, Jim, thank you so much for being our guest today. Hey guys, uh, absolute pleasure, and uh, have a have a have a great day. Well, this uh, this concludes our podcast, and and as always, may the Lord richly bless you as you pursue Him through His ordinary means. 